welcome to episode 23 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined by Chris Wildman. Hello! As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps towards the cost of producing the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming majors. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And welcome back, Chris. It's been a little while since we've had you on the show. A wee while, yeah. Um, I think we've had one pandemic since I was last on, or at least early days pandemic since I was last on. (laughs) At least one whole pandemic, possibly more. As long as it's the last one, doesn't really matter. Hopefully. We're supposedly on our road back to freedom now, aren't we? Touch At wood. least it here Touch in the UK. I'm, I'm knowing more people who are getting the vaccine than not, so fingers crossed we're all back to normality in the next few weeks. That, that's true, actually. Yeah, I think it's the, the, I could say the same. Um, yeah, so uh, how have you been? What have you been up to? Uh, yeah, not bad, thanks, mate. Um, two modes, working hard or hardly working. Uh, normally there's a brush in my hand uh, for at least uh, 10 of the 16 hours of the day I'm awake for. So lots of painting for commissions, lots of painting for boards and sword hobbies in Derby, my local hobby store, and occasionally painting for me as well. Missing games terribly, but as we said, we'll hopefully be back to those soon. And it just means I've got a lot of stuff to use and uh, new games to try because of all the stuff I've been painting. Yes, mate. All good. How about yourself? Good. Um, I mean, I've just been sort of busy on with various little hobby projects and keeping up with all the, the new releases um, for covering on the podcast and such, but um, we'll get into it in the Paint Station Garrison shortly, but I've recently actually been working on some commission work myself, which is nice. It's uh, given me a change from working on my Hawks for a bit. Variety being the spice of life turned into my first love. Um, I wish I could go through that first experience of painting them all over again. <laughs> yeah it is interesting um i think the fact that a cardifix was the first tyrannid model that i've actually ever saw it painted properly um yeah. was a uh, an eye-opener but I, I enjoyed it and i'm having a lot of fun with that so um yeah so yeah uh tonight's episode guys is it's gonna be an interesting one so we're a little bit between releases at the moment and for the first time in a while we haven't actually got an on crusade segment in this show um we will get through the backlog of some of the existing ninth edition factions we'll cover them on crusade at some point um and soon it probably won't be long before we do a on crusade with the drukari if released that's on its way soon so that's going to be interesting i know on the warmer community site today they teased that part of the mechanic for the drukari on crusade is that you basically earn spoils and victory and influence from the results of your 
real space raids, i.e. your games, in order to actually influence your political standing in Kamora, in the Dark City. Which is amazing. Yeah, that's really cool to think that your game on the table is going to be influencing the standing of your Archon in the you know courts of the Cabals back in Kamora itself. So I'm interested nice. to learn a bit more about that. Yeah, it'd be nice if we get similar elements for other armies, you know. What what do the battles on the table do to affect the army off the table? Those are the bits about Crusade that I love. Not just the, the warband or the army growing in experience or developing new skills, it's what's the impact having on their race or that war zone or that kind of sector of the galaxy. I still think it's really impressive that so far, beyond the various similarities within the Space Marine factions, there hasn't really been any sort of duplicate mechanics yet for the races. Like they have all got pretty unique, you know, like crusade specialisms, and I think it's brilliant. Yeah, that's literal perfection of what I personally wanted when they announced narrative crusade mode. <laughs> um, I don't want my genius dealer called to play like my space walls. No, not at all. Uh, but speaking of near perfection. Um, one of our main topics for tonight is we're actually going to be looking at the open war cards once again. So I did actually go back through the old catalogue of the episodes we've got, and we did originally cover the open war cards on episode four, <laughs> I believe it was. Many moons ago. We are revisiting them for the ninth edition versions of the open war cards, because they have changed a bit, and I think they're worth um, just you know devoting a segment to um, to discuss because that's a really cool way to play the game and now we've got you know a, a new way to play ninth edition again um which is always brilliant um and then after that we're going to actually have another mission focus for the first time in a couple of episodes so i'm actually joined for that segment later on by mr dave barker where earlier in the week we got together to discuss um one of the it's one of the White Dwarf missions from the Argamon campaign, but you know, we, we've done an episode on the whole campaign system for that before, um, so go check that out if you're interested in it. But this was one of the actual missions um, provided within one of those um, issues. I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head. That I just thought was really interesting and different and had a, a cool mechanic in it that I wanted to showcase in the mission focus. Um, so funnily enough, the mission itself is called The Collapse of Argamon. But we're looking at it more in a vacuum um, as just a cool scenario as opposed to a linchpin of the Agavon campaign system. So that's an interesting mission focus. Stick around for that. Um, and then we'll be uh, checking in with our Penn Station garrison, as always. And we'll also have a little roundup of some of our community spotlights towards the end of the show. So I think with that, we've already sort of touched a little bit on you know what I've been doing so if we jump over to the pin station garrison now then I can elaborate a bit more on that so we will see you in a moment guys paint station garrison and we're back guys so as we sort of alluded to in the intro, um, this week for my paint station garrison, I've not been painting orcs, which does mean that looted wagon is still not done. But 
it'll get there at some point, it's half done. No, instead, um, I've been actually working on a commission piece for a client, so um, it's the start of what sounds like is going to be quite a large Tyranid force. Um, he's already been um, talking to me about his grand ideas about when to pick up some large Forge World beasties for his nids, so we'll have to see if they end up on my, my paint station at any point in the near future. But um, yeah, it's been it's been a change instead of working on rusty metal armor plates for all my orcs I've been working on some uh, some more sort of brighter natural tones for these tyranids which are a um, they're actually a custom hive fleet but they're more or less um, hive fleet behemoth inversed I think it is yeah so yeah hive fleet behemoth the, the behemoth the red and the blackish blue carapace one no, that's not the one I'm thinking of then, whichever it is. It's the, the one Lithen, which has... The Lithen are the pale ones with the purple carapace. No, maybe it's a blend then. Either case, this yeah. particular um, custom hive fleet, they've got red flesh and the bone carapace. Yep. Um, I can't remember what it is, but I'm sure one of the hive fleets has... like Kraken. Kraken's red and bone. Is that it? Is it Kraken then? Yeah. yeah. Which it, Kraken is typically the... Like bony flesh tones for the skin, and then the red carapace was well, the inverse That's of that. The one. Um, and it actually looks really nice. Um, I'm, I've been enjoying it because it looks very bright and garish as you're working on the layers initially, because you're working with like Mephiston Red and um, Evil Sun's Scarlet as the base for the skin, which initially makes it a very bright model. But once yep. you get in the Xandri dust carapace, and then once the whole thing gets its like you know washes of Agrax to sort of bring it down, it comes together quite nicely. Yeah, the, so. the feathering on the um, edges of the carapace is really really nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's funny, but I actually feel like that's the thing that's that is the one part of the paint scheme that I think will get noticeably better by the end of it, because I think that's something which I'll just get the motion it down a bit more because it's yeah. it, it's such a simple thing as painting just lots of little lines you like you know exactly. in tandem but it's a big difference between not having done something like that before because it's kind of like hand painted weathering almost like it has a similar yeah. feel to doing the the like rusted or damaged metal edges on my orcs but instead, I do it for like scuffed leather. So, like on a Space Marine chaplain at the bottom of their coat, where you go over with a really pale, off kind of whitey but brown color. It's essentially the same principle. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that I've been finding interesting with it is because of the curving shape of the various carapace panels, working out which edges of it do and don't need it, because yeah. I think it looks a little. I found personally, it's a little overdone if I do every single edge with those line highlights because then it makes it look um i, I think it, make it, it makes it less clear where the, like the light is hitting it or where the curvature is yeah it's also it can make it look a lot more like unnatural a lot like artificial as opposed to organic yeah um so it's it, it it's been an interesting little um learning curve because i think other than I think other than the orc flesh, I haven't really ever painted anything that's flesh tones that would be considered sort of realistic or organic. Because even when I paint my demons, 
obviously they're demonic creatures so there's an element where you can get away with the skin kind of looking like anything or having color tones in any part of it it doesn't yeah. have to look like it could be a, a living breathing creature yeah um, that, that's the challenge but the great thing with Tyranids is that the last one you paint will not look like the first one you painted but then at the same time the weird thing about Tyranids is that the last one you painted won't look like the first one you painted well I have to say the thing that I've enjoyed the most about it is the fact that it doesn't feel like there's a um, painting the weapons stage to the model. Yeah. So obviously like with my orcs, it kind of breaks down to four key areas. It's like the green skin, the levers of the clothes they're wearing, the metal of the weapons they're wielding, and then wherever I apply the clan colours of blue. Yeah. And it feels like I'm skipping that step with the nids. It's kind of like... Right, red skin, but that also covers all the non-bony weapons. The car, uh, the carapace, but then that also includes the bony weapons like the sides. Um, and then there's just the details stage. So that's where like the sides are brought up to a lighter bone on the tips. Um, I'll do the highlights on the skin. Um, I'll include. I'll do things like the eyes and teeth and stuff or whatever but yeah. it feels like it's really just two stages and then details which is actually really nice yeah that's pretty much it i always found i've done a few turn armies now that you can as long as you get a nice smooth scheme down if you put that extra little bit of effort and brightness into the teeth and the eyes and the little vents on their arms and legs and stuff that really really finishes off the model nicely yeah that's so that that's exactly what i've been doing and um so far i've finished up a Carnifix, a Tyranid Prime, and the first of the Warriors. And as part of this initial batch, there's another five Warriors to do, and the Winged Hive Tyrant. So I'm yeah. looking forward to getting those finished soon. Um, and um, funnily enough, the uh, the Tyranid Warrior Prime, I think that's what it's called, um, it's actually yep. somewhat converted a little bit. So it's using the torso of a Ravener rather than a Warrior. Which means it's this serpentine body emerging from the ground, um, and as like a, a unique design request, um, the clients asked for the base to be like a hundred percent textured, so it doesn't even have the yep. smooth rim around the edge. Okay. Um, so the whole thing looks kind of like a molehill, you know, when it's on a flat surface on a playing table, because it is yep. entirely done with like texture paint and then painted up like this um, breach in the earth. And it yeah, looks like. really nice. It, it stands out um, compared to the other warriors around him who are using the same like base texture, but just in a traditional manner on the top of the base. Yeah. Nice one. Sounds good. Sounds like it's coming together nicely. Yeah. Um, I haven't uh, posted a finished picture of the Prime yet, but I will be doing probably tomorrow or whenever. And they'll be over on my sort of Instagram. So yeah, that's... Uh, as yet unnamed High Fleet, but sounds like it's going to be growing into quite a larger project, so I might be painting a few more bugs in my future paint station garrisons. Good stuff, horde armies for days. And then, speaking of hordes, how about yourself, Chris? Because I'm sure you've painted a whole horde of models. Yes, uh, I've been painting... I had a night off last night for the first time in three weeks, which was treasured. Uh, I've, I've done some War of the Roses stuff for a client, I've done Blood Bowl teams, I've done uh, small army projects, characters, 
For myself, I finished my Imperial Knight uh, Serastus Lancer last weekend, which I absolutely loved. That's going to be going in my 30k army and occasionally 40k. Was that your own personal one? Was that the one with the sort of like lance tip that's the green? Sort yeah, of thing? yeah, that, yeah, that's that's mine. Painted in my family heraldry colours of white and blue and gold. <laughs> did which was nice. Is I that the one some... that you painted to match a Titanicus scale version of the same model? Yes, exactly. So I've got the yeah. same night house for Adeptus Titanicus. Yeah, I saw you picture with them like side by side, and I was like, oh, he's literally recreated. It's not even just like done in the same color scheme. It looks like it's almost intended to be the same night. Yeah, exactly. Very yeah. don't talk to me or my son ever again meme. <laughs> uh, I also did, as a, a company called Crooked Dice showed off something called Island Priests for four models. Uh, and they're a blatant tribute to Father Ted, um, which for anyone who doesn't know is a very popular comedy from the 90s from Channel 4 based in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> check it out. And it's the four main characters from it. So I bought those, painted them up, and I'm going to give them to my dad for uh, Father's Day. I oh, really enjoy them. Those were wonderful. I, I was thinking about using them as objectives in games and sacking out opponents and just quoting Father Ted in games, but I thought, no, nah, let's, let's give them to the old man who got me into comedy and music and is a bit of a nerd but won't admit it. Uh, yeah, lots of painting and no gaming sadly, so hopefully that's going to change in a few weeks time and the things will balance out a little bit more and I can give my eyes a break. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I mean, you do just like, you know, blitz through the sort of things that you get through. I constantly see your posts. So like done this and done this and done this and it's just impressive like you really do get some excellent quality out at an incredible pace in January January I painted 376 models uh, in February I think I did just over 200 and I'm very nearly at 300 well just over 200 in March oh <laughs> my god yeah um Another thing I'm really excited for you know, are places to open up so I don't have to spend all my time in home and work. Yes, just be able to get anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like games are great, but like a hot tub cabin weekend away or a, a weekend away on a city break. Just something I love. I love my hobby. I love painting. I love models. I love the community. I've missed everything about it. But at the same time, something new, please. It's been a year now. Yeah, I know. Just something new. <laughs> exactly. Oh uh, yeah, uh, paint station wise, at the minute I've got a Blood Bowl team for a client for human ability that I'm going to get finished up over the weekend. And for me, I'm going to start a Space Wolves Zone Mortalis army for Horus Heresy. So keep an eye out for that when that gets uh, started, maybe over the weekend. That'd be nice. I like some 30k Space Wolves. Not quite a fan of the 40k ones, but Heresy era Space Wolves I really like. Yeah. Yeah, I got um, Prospero Burns is one of my favourite heresy books, and I've got it on Audible recently to revisit it and love it. Listened to A Thousand Sons, and it just cemented how much I love the Space Wolves and how incorrect Thousand Sons were in their practices. <laughs> Agnes did nothing wrong. Indeed. Yeah, there was a few bits in that book where I was like, hmm. <laughs> That's something wrong. Yeah, uh, it's That's definitely, if wrong. anyone like me does likes to listen instead of read i don't have a lot of time to pick up a book sadly audible's great you get a free credit a month and most of the horror heresy books are on there it's a really good way to get them out and smashed and develop the lore and enjoy yourselves 
yeah, I've been meaning to um, sort of look at that myself. Um, I think it's something I'm going to probably try in the next. Yeah, it's definitely worth a couple of weeks. So I think that's pretty much everything that we've been up to, um, hobby-wise. So should we jump over now to our our spotlight topic for tonight? Let's. I've got cards in front of me, dealing hands to no one. You gets listen up now, listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you kids supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of yous without a proper pen job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative War Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects, and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right, you kids. Get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paint boy. It better be ready and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tube sent you. You might get some extra special. Welcome back, guys. I'm going to talk to you about our spotlight topic for this episode, which are the open war cards for 9th edition Warhammer 40,000. Mm. So, like Tony said at the start of the episode, we have covered the previous edition ones. Um, and we both agree that it's a great resource for games and it's a really ideal way to play 40k in a variety of scenarios. So, for instance, I find they're great for pickup games or if you're meeting somebody you've not met or played before, it's a really great way to kind of get your games in without deciding, oh, let's do a 2,000 point match play game or let's do uh, a crusade game where my force has played a few games and yours hasn't. They're a really nice way to test the waters, and they're also really good for people who are relatively new to 40k, because the objectives are simple and easily constructed, and it really helps you get the gist of what a game of 40k can and ideally should look like. Yeah, I completely agree. I think these are like the two main key, not not key ways, but like I think these are the two best ways I've experienced or seen the open war cards used. So... What this is, um, ever since the dawn of 8th edition, Games Workshop has sort of championed the three ways to play with uh, open play, narrative, and match play. Now, obviously, we're primarily a narrative podcast, but I personally, I tend to view that more as a catch-all phrase for basically any kind of gameplay that would be considered not fit for competitive play. <laughs> and for me, the open war cards are a great example of that. So to say that it's literally a deck of cards that you can buy from the Games Workshop web store. So in the UK, you can get them for just £12. It's like it's less than a codex. It's less than things like the um, Beyond the Veil mission packs and stuff. It's just... Yeah, cheaper than a round of drinks in most pubs. That, <laughs> yeah. that tends to be how I quantify things like this is, does it cost as much as a round in the pub and will it last me as long? It'll last you much longer. 
<laughs> absolutely will. My last my last deck of cards, I still got them. They're battered and beaten. I'm fairly sure I've misplaced a couple of the cards, but they, they got their money's worth out of me tenfold. Yeah, so if you you know, if you don't get a chance to play that often or you you or someone in your playgroup is relatively new to the hobby, this is a brilliant way for a very small financial investment to be able to just pick up and play games of 40k. You don't need, um, like I say, grand tournament mission packs. You don't need um, the latest campaign books or anything like that. You just need your codexes and this pack, you know, open war pack and the core rules, which are free now anyway for ninth edition, um, pretty much. And you can play, and they're brilliant because basically it's this deck of cards which includes objectives, deployments, twists, ruses, and other stuff, and basically you just generate a mission to play on the fly and it is really straightforward but also has a lot of actual depth to it if you do want to play with it a lot so yeah we're, we're going to go into how it all works but this is kind of the it's the main point of entry into what games workshop sort of considers the open war format really um i mean a lot of people often hear the phrase and think it just means literally throw anything you have on the table and roll dice at each other and just go at it which it can do but in terms yeah, of sometimes create... that's, that's what you want in a game sometimes you rock up to your local gaming club your mates cancelled on you uh there's another dude there who's going through the same thing you pull out your deck of cards you randomly generate a mission and you've got a game yeah and that's what these are brilliant for so how that works is as such. So when you get the pack, it's basically just like, you know, one of these little games with your pack of cards, like you would do for your tactical cards or your objective cards or anything you get for your, your faction. Um, but this is like a universal one, obviously, because it's just universal mission rules. It comes with a little sort of two-page fold-out card leaflet that just explains how you generate a mission, and that's it. So you don't have 10 pages of pre-game, you know, setups and things like you do for even your narrative and crusade missions as well as your match play ones. And uh, we're just going to go through it. So uh, the little blurb on the front here just gives you a good summary of what we've just said. Open War is a mission generator that uses decks of cards to determine your game of Warhammer 40,000. The objective and sudden death decks tell you what you must do in order to win the battle. The deployment deck shows you where to deploy your models. And the twist and ruse decks apply special rules to your battle. To generate an open war mission, follow the instructions below. And it's as simple as that. So there's a little bit on here about you know players uh, pick their armies, write some lists, set up the battlefields as per this sort of new um, mission scales. So you know power to points level ratios and your board sizes as your minimum recommendations. But interestingly, the open war cards, um, they do actually allow you to play um, unbalanced games because they have mechanics in place for if one player has a larger force than another. Um, yeah, is... there was um, one of the things about the Sun Death and the Ruse elements, um, which are probably the two bits I don't play with the most, but they do have their place. So I used to run the beginner clubs, uh, at my local games workshop for the the nippers who were getting into Warhammer 40,000. And you'd have little John who's got a box of intercessors and a captain, and then you've got uh, Jeremy who's got a stock collecting box. So one of those forces is 
uh, greatly outnumbering the other in points. So you throw down a sudden death, and for instance, uh, what the player with the lower power limit power levels has to wipe out the enemy HQ, they win. Mm. Simple as that. So it discourages that. Oh, I don't have as many points as you. We can't play, or this is going to be a really horrible game. I'm not going to be able to do anything or beat you. It tries to break down that barrier and have it so that it's not about tabling or wiping your opponent's army. It's about trying to figure out an objective to make you be able to play that game and then be able to have as much fun as you can with what you've got and not excluding anybody based on points balance or number of models or so on. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like you say, it's it's useful for those two sort of ends of the scale, one where you've got one player who clearly has a distinctly larger force than the other, but you can still play that game and have fun with it, you know, for both players. Or it also helps if it's that slight imbalance, but you don't have the time, or if it's newer players, don't have the knowledge to how to tweak one player's 1,000-point army down to match the other player's 800-point collection. You just say, it just doesn't matter. Use your two forces, and the person with a slightly smaller force gets a ruse. Yeah, exactly. And that's anything that makes this hobby accessible for any person who wants to take part, I think is only ever a good thing. I think yeah. it's then down to us as community members and gamers, painters, hobbyists, club goers. This then helps us again break down those barriers and get through those obstacles and get people enjoying the game with what they've got. And all they need is this little deck of cards. So. Exactly. Um, in order to generate an open war mission, you separate the open war cards into the following five decks. Objectives, Deployment, Twist, Ruse, Sudden Death, and draw them as follows. Uh, objective. One player draws one card from the objective deck. This card specifies what you must do to achieve victory in the battle. Most objectives will require players to set up one or more objective markers. This is explained shortly. Uh, deployment. One player draws one card from the deployment deck. This card determines the available deployment zones for the battle. So again, just here's your picture of your deployment. That's what you'll be doing. Twist. One player draws one card from the twist deck. This card represents a special rule that applies to both armies for the duration of the battle. It adds unusual circumstances and variety to your games that will require you to adapt your battle plan accordingly. So that's where the little yeah. element of narrative play comes into these. Twists are easily one of the best things about this as a product. You could throw those into your open play games, your narrative games, your match play games. Just little things like you could just run, have have the deck. So all the cards are great because the different kinds, the objectives, the deployments, the twists, the ruse, the sun death, they all have different designs on the back. So you could have them all out in their segments, shuffled on the table, and just pull them as is. What I used to do on one of my gaming nights, I used to have the twist deck at the end of a row of tables where there'd be eight or ten people playing 40k, and each person would draw a card and that would affect their game, whether it was open play or match play or whatever, and they just added that little bit of spice and that little bit of, oh no, what am I going to do now? Um, that's that's really, really going to make this game a challenge for me. They just add that little bit of surprisingly fun challenge or advantage that can really make a game spicy, and those are the games you remember. Yeah, they're almost like micro-theatres of war. Yeah, like, exactly. It, rather than adding, say, um, two or three environmental rules plus a stratagem, instead it's just a, here's this one rule that applies to both armies. It applies to, you know, for the whole game. Simple. Yeah. You know, 
Uh, but it's surprising how much of an influence that can really bring to the story of a game and to the challenges of adapting to that unique battlefield scenario. Um, then you also have ruses, which this is where if the players used power point, uh, power points, no, if the players used power ratings or points values to muster their army, they compare the total for all the units in their army. If one player has a total greater than their opponent, um, it's if one player has a total that is greater, their opponent draws one card from the ruse deck and keeps that card secret. This card details a cunning ploy that the player can use during the battle. This card is only revealed if that player uses it. Now, so yeah, it's basically sort of like an underdog mechanic. Um, you see these in things yeah. like Blood Bowl, Necromunda, and so on. Um, it's just really cool and helpful. Personally, I also kind of like to um, play with ruses, even in, uh, like, air quotes, balanced games, um, where you just have yeah. both players draw one ruse each. And, you know, you yeah. can have that as a an extra tactical element to the game or yeah. you can and then do your, your master ploy is about to be executed your opponent puts his card up between two fingers and goes now wait just a minute there and that's when everything turns on its head yes or if you even want to go so far as to say that in an unbalanced game both players get one ruse anyway but then the player with the lower value gets an extra one and then yes yeah, exactly. all sorts of sneaky battlefield tricks going on um, and then, uh, finally, there is the Sudden Death cards. Now, these are probably used the least because this is only used um, if the players uh, compare the total of all the units in their armies and one player has a total that is double or more of their opponents. So, like, you're talking bringing a 2,000-point army to fight a 1,000-point army, that sort of thing. Um, and basically... Um, these cards are, as you saw mentioned earlier, they're immediate alternate win conditions that are kept secret. Um, and the player with the lower army uh, value can try and achieve this one thing. And if they achieve that thing, they win regardless. It might be kill the enemy warlord. If they do that, they win the game. Now, they've had to use you know a far smaller force to achieve this one particular thing, which is why it, you know, it, it creates that tension and excitement about achieving it and probably less of a feel bad if the 2000 point army gets beaten by a thousand point army because you've not just crushed them with your overwhelming you know power instead they've managed to achieve their one very specific goal in order to claim victory in the war effort even if maybe not in the battle yeah yeah that's the trick as i said earlier it's not all about tabling your opponent or doing the same six objective missions that you do every Friday and Tuesday night, these really make you think on your toes and make that game different and enables your opponent who doesn't have the same force as you to then be able to enjoy that. And then it's a good test for an experienced player with a larger force to think, okay, this is going to be really challenging for me to do because their sudden death is super achievable if I'm careless or if I lack tactical ability for a turn so yeah it forces to have a more interesting game not that the games aren't interesting but it just it tips it over the edge of being conventional i'll say oh yeah um and it's worth and it's really nice that in here there's actually a designer's note that says open wall offers a wide variety of missions through near endless combinations of cards 
If players draw a particular combination they have played before, or if they feel the combination doesn't suit their intended battle, they should feel free to redraw any of these cards. So even in you know the mission pack itself, as it were, the designers are saying, you know, make it work for you. Don't feel like you have to stringently stick to these, you know, rules as written. Draw cards, yeah. veto some. I've no, I know there are a couple of different ways I've seen different community members and content creators um, use card picking systems, such as stuff like um, drawing free for every category. And between you, you both pick one to remove sort of thing. And then there's an element of building this semi-randomized mission in such a way that both players feel like they're having some input into creating what should be a fun, engaging, and balanced yeah. game. It also encourages you to have that conversation and to ensure that it's a game that you both want to play and a game you both feel like you'll you'll enjoy because there's... Nothing worse than rolling a mission, um, rolling a deployment, and be like, oh, this is already an extraordinarily uphill battle, despite the fact our forces are balanced. I don't think we're going to enjoy this. Whereas this really does say, as you said, the three-card system of you take one away, they take one away, that really reduces any element of like horrendously unlucky draws. Mm. Like, for example, there are two of the deployment maps that have... Uh, the sort of like spearhead tips of deployment zones actually touching like in contact yeah. so the attacker and defender can be on top of each other in some areas of the board from the very start of the game now maybe you know given the armies you're playing that might be a bit of a struggle if i don't know say it's say it's tau versus world eaters you know that's going to go one way or the other now yeah. If you had something that was a more conventional setup, maybe you're going to get a more balanced gameplay experience. But who knows? Maybe you do want to see how Tau deal with a you know a very angry spearhead of corn berserkers starting in midfield and moving forwards. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it opens up to these wild scenarios that the combinations will just throw you on your head at each different game no two games will be alike unless you play an ungodly amount of 40k which sadly nobody is at the minute <laughs> yeah. so yeah just relish in that challenge see what 30 corn berserkers already at the middle of the board are going to do to all your pathfinders you never know your dice might say not today corn uh and and blast them all off the table and that'll be a game you can talk about for days to come and then once you've sort of generated the parameters of your mission there's the last couple of bits about setup and getting started in here so you've got uh, players should now set up any objective markers as specified at their objective card, other than those for, for which there are instructions to set them up at a later point. Um, the players roll off and the winner decides who will be the attacker and who will be the defender. The defender selects one deployment zone from the deployment card for their army and the attacker uses the other deployment zone. Players alternate setting up units, um, starting with the defender... Uh, if one player finishes the point, then he even sets up all their units. Uh, the first turn. So as written on the open war pack, the players roll off and the winner declares whether they will take the first or second turn. However, this is a product that's been in circulation now for, you know, going on close to a year. So feel free to apply any, you know, relevant FAQs or adjustments that you prefer. I think that the, the relatively recent change where the winner of the roll-off has to go first 
I quite like that, and I would probably look to apply it to these uh, missions as well, but to each their own. Yeah. Um, unless otherwise stated, the battle automatically ends at the end of battle round five. So that's one of these sort of new standardized things for ninth edition. So that's like one of the small changes from how they were in eighth. Uh, and victory conditions, each objective card specifies how to determine the winner of the battle. And that's literally everything in terms of pre-game setup. So we've sort of talked about the the virtues of how this all comes together and why we think it's really great for pickup games, games of variety, games between newer players or people with slightly unbalanced collections they want to use. And um, I also think it's really good for just the fact that it's compatible with Crusade again if you want it to be. As with many of these game modes, there's nothing stopping you from assigning um, agendas even using these missions in the same way you would do for a crusade mission and randomizing a crusade reward from a mission pack that exists if you want to use your crusade force in an open war game. Yeah, it's it lends itself as... It's almost like... Uh, let me start again. I would class these cards as seasoning for any... 40k game you want to play so as you were saying with crusade games if you and your opponent agreed or you and your uh, crusade league group agreed you could apply a twist card to each round of games so if you meet up every wednesday and want to play a game you could call you could pull a random twist card and say cool um the set to a fine and has blinding sun it's going to affect all our abilities to hit with our shooting attacks uh we'll draw a new one at the next time the, the possibilities really are eye-watchingly wonderful and it just depends on how how ready you are to take those gambles and to try these cards and really have some interesting games of warhammer 40,000 that can just tell a fantastic story mm. i think you know, like we're gonna go through each of these um different kinds of cards now and give a few examples of them which will give you an idea of how these sort of missions look when they come together but i think from my personal experience, the Open War deck, or the Open War Mission Pack as it's now known, I'm trying to sort of describe this, but I think it's one of the products that you really have to try to really appreciate its value, to like see how good it is. I think Agreed. when you, you, know, you listen to how Crusade plays, you can understand how it's going to be good. When you look at the, even like you know, the grand tournament packs and stuff, you can see how that's going to be good for what it's trying to do. You know, for for creating those match play environments. Um, I think even things like um, cities of death and stuff and urban conquest and so on. I think it's very clear how it's going to be good. I think the open war cards, it's not really that clear until you play it, and then you get it. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why it might yeah, often it's... get overlooked because a lot of people don't give it a chance and actually it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, they they probably see the open war on the front and have that preconception of, oh, that's for you know games of 40k that I don't really want to take for a spin. But honestly, for for the price it is, and it pays for itself after a few games, and those games 
will be very hard not to enjoy to the caliber that I found people enjoying them. I took these to um a Friday gaming night at a local games workshop where everybody played thousand points, eternal war missions, same deployment, same missions, uh, to the point where everybody was starting to get a little bit kind of yawning about it. So we I brought my open war cards and I had them all generate a random mission with a random deployment twist and objective. And everybody loved them. And we, we sold a lot of cards at night because people took them for a spin and tried them and they made some really, really good, interesting games. And nobody saw it coming. Yeah, I guess. And these were these were people who considered themselves competitive and they they liked their their match play games and their conventional Warhammer forty thousand, but if it wasn't for just taking it for a spin and pulling those cards, they they wouldn't have known. And I'd like to think that they've still got those cards and remember those games fondly. Acid Rain. Everybody always drew Acid Rain um, somehow. And that was one which limited your range for shooting. So for a lot of Space Marine players, that was a really, really challenging card. But again, it made for some cracking games. Um, I always remember the uh, old objective card that was Kill the Courier. So you both had to yeah. designate like one particular model and the entire objective of the game for both forces was to kill that particular model from your opponent's army. And trying to simultaneously, you know, strike deep at that opponent's um, character that's probably surrounded by their forces while simultaneously trying to protect your own, you know. Yeah. It's not easy to keep a Death Killer War Trike alive and try and kill the enemy Nurgle Sorcerer at the same time. No, they they everybody goes to it. Well, I do anyway. I go to a game with a list and I've got right. This unit's job is that. That unit's job is that. That leader is going to buff this unit, and the core and the stratagem is going to be like this. And then you get that random card which says, uh, "Have a unit in your enemy's deployment zone by turn five to win." And you're like, "Oh God." Oh God, what do I do? What what does this look like? And it just, it, again, it takes that convention of what a Warhammer 40,000 game conventionally looks like and turns it on its head. And it will really, really make you hopefully fall in love with the game all over again like it did me. I was playing a lot of 40k until these cards came along. Um, and they're going to be in my bag when I go for a game when things open back up again. Well, once it's you know suitable to have gatherings of player groups again, I think you sort of touched on a little point earlier with that gaming club that this is such a low cost investment. You don't even need to have a pack each. You could buy one for the club or one for your group of friends and you can pass it around, you know, like I say, when safe to do so. <laughs> um, and you can all generate, you know, games for everyone that night. You just blew the one deck of cards. Yeah. Yeah, and then everybody knows what their objective is, everyone knows what the deployment is, and everyone will play their games completely differently, despite the fact that they've all got the same parameters, mm. and they'll all have different stories to tell. You could, even if you wanted to sort of see how that variation comes in, you could have everyone play the same objective card, but then everyone plays individually different deployment, twist, and ruse. And you can yeah. see how, even though everyone's playing the same you know, mission objective those three, four different games will be very different because of the different battlefield environments they're having to achieve that objective in. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we're gonna we're just going to go through some of the cards from each of these different sets now, just as some examples. So, in the 9th edition mission pack for Open War, there are nine different possible objectives. Um... Some examples of which here are Taken Hold, 
Whether command posts or communication beacons, holy shrines or munition dumps, these assets must be seized at any cost, for with them comes victory. The players roll off. Starting with the winner, each player alternates placing objective markers until six have been set up. Each objective marker must be more than six inches away from the edge of the battlefield, and more than 12 from any other objective marker. Starting from the second battle round, each player scores one victory point for each objective marker they control at the end of their command phase. The player with the most victory points at the end of the battle is the winner. Now, I want to highlight this one because that, on the face of it, that is a pretty standard-ish 9th edition objective set. You know, yeah, you see that markers. in a lot of kind of generated missions or, or match play missions. It's a very kind of, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, baseline, like it's yes. yeah, yeah. There's six objective markers on the battlefield. The way you win is by holding them, sort of thing. So it's yeah. we talk about you know how some of these open war things can create really out there and somewhat wild results, but at the same time, there is stuff in there that is pretty recognizable as standard 40k, and that's why it doesn't get too out of hand because. It's unlikely you're going to roll up a mission that has an absurd deployment and objective and twist. You're going to get stuff that sort of draws the focus to one or the other each game, such as um, yeah, yeah. There'll be some games which will look like very vanilla for a term. Uh, there'll be some games where you'll look at the mission and think, "What on earth is going on?" You've got a ring deployment with a big loop in the middle, or one with the deployment running down the middle of the board. Uh, you've got debris falling from the sky doing mortal wounds to your units. Uh, you've got to try and slay the warlord as fast as he can. <laughs> yeah, so like, uh, but then it, it does escalate. So, like, the, the, the second example objective search and secure. A key objective has been triangulated to this position, but its exact location remains unclear. You must find it and secure it whilst preventing the enemy from doing the same. The players roll off, starting with the winner. Each player alternates placing six objective markers, numbered one to six, until six have been set up. Each objective marker must be six inches from an edge and twelve from another marker. Sounds familiar so far. Indeed. At the start of each battle round, after the first, randomly select one objective marker on the battlefield by rolling one d6. Remove that objective marker from the battlefield. If the d6 roll does not correspond to an objective marker in the battlefield, keep rolling until it does. Each player scores one victory missions. point. Yeah. Each player scores one victory point for each objective marker they control at the end of their turn. The player with the most victory points at the end of the battle is the winner. So again, six markers hold the markers to win. But the thing that makes it unusual is the fact that every turn one of those markers is randomly disappearing as you're zoning in yeah. on where the key thing is, which means there's less yeah. victory points available the longer the game goes on and the harder fought it's going to be to control those objectives that remain. Yeah, any any scenario where the parameters of a mission change during the turns, I absolutely love. Because it's easy for you know something similar to take and hold, where, cool, I've got this objective, I'm going to sit on it for five turns and get these points. Whereas if it's if you sit on it for four turns and then it disappears and it's no good, like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And then it can become something that's, you know, quite unusual, such as objective drop. Hurtling down through the atmosphere comes a vital objective of great value, a supply drop or a skate pod. Uh, yeah. Whatever the case, it must be yours. Place an objective marker in the centre of the battlefield. At the start of each battle round, the players roll off. 
The winner can move the objective marker 2d6 inches. Starting from the third battle round, a player scores one victory point if they control the objective marker at the end of their command phase. In addition, a player scores two victory points if they control the objective marker at the end of the battle. The player with the most victory points is the winner. So this is one where you're fighting over that single objective marker, but yep. it can be moving around. It can be swaying backwards or forwards. It can be doing circuits. It could be doing anything. And you're trying to fight for the ground underneath it at any given time. Just this great image of Space Marines with the Ross. It's going left over there. Quick. No, wait. No, it's going this way. Wait, no. Strong wind. Oh, God. Quick. <laughs> Again, any anything where the objective is moving or changing or disappearing, those are really, really great games. And they really encourage you to focus on not just shooting your opponent's army off the board or this is my objective, I'm going to sit on it for five turns and get as many points as possible. It really encourages you to move about the board and make those great scenarios and tell that great story for your armies as well. Yeah, because it even gives you that opportunity to try and get you know that last ditch, the clench of victory from the jaws of defeat because you yeah. can only score one point per turn for being the one currently holding the objective. And yet, if you hold it at the end of the game, you score those two extra, which means that having it at the very end is worth twice as much as at any other point in the game. Yeah. Yeah, so get out and about and keep your eye on the sky. But where you will be starting and where you will be getting out and about too can also be very different because there are 12 different deployment maps in this deck. Now, I would say four of them are relatively standardish deployments, you know, like long table edge, short table yeah, edge. Yeah, Dawn of War or, or short table edge, yeah. The table quarters, etc. But then equally, I would say... The other eight are all very unusual, non-standard deployments. Like one of them here is there's like a center um, bubble for one player, so like a twelve-inch radius from the center of the table, and the other player gets every diagonal corner of the table around them. So that's that's very similar to a Horus Heresy mission uh, deployment called Ambush, which as a World Eaters player and as a soon-to-be Space Wars player, is one of my absolute favourites because by turn one, you're probably charging something. Probably and, and charging again, you something. You can draw that card for your 40k game and think, oh god, no, this is already an uphill battle. Or you could draw it and think, oh my god, yes, my Corn Berserkers are literally going to eat everything next to them. Yeah. And then but that like... doesn't matter if your objective is dancing about the board and you've got to try and catch it at the end of the game. Yeah, but then what if you, there are six objectives all across the board and they're disappearing? and some of the remaining ones end up being back in those corners, then that means that the defender has to try and break out from that centre circle. They can't just yep. shell up and, you know, um, show the defences. Um, there's a pair of, like, arrowhead setups, the uh, one for long table edge and one for short, but the arrowheads actually yep. meet at the centre of the table, so that's the one we're talking about, where you're going to be right on top of each other from the very beginning. Yep. Um, and then there's even there's a, a really unusual one that looks almost a bit like a chevron pattern because yes I saw that yeah, the only so, thing about these missions is measuring them out but once you've done it honestly they're great fun yeah so like this like chevron deployment um, one player has the long one long table edge and an arrowhead deployment that goes right to the centre of the table but the other player 
has almost the inverse of that, where instead of having an arrowhead deployment that also meets at the centre, they have the two diagonal corners of the opposite table edge. So they've got like an arrowhead going in towards the centre of their back deployment as, as an area that they're not allowed to be in. It, it, it's a bit of an odd one to visualise in this format for a podcast, I imagine, but you've essentially got one player's arrowhead force moving into the table and the other player in the opposite two corners, more or less. Yeah, so it, kind of, it depending on the scenario, it could play like kind of an ambush or it could play as one force chasing another one. Out yeah, of the, or like the a convoy sector. that's trying to force its way through a defence line. Yeah. All sorts. And you say all these different setups are going to vary heavily on how they play out on those objectives that you're trying to achieve. And then on top of that, we have 18 twist cards varying um, in influence and effect and coming in effectively one of three flavours, which tends to be either um, an army-wide buff for both forces or an army-wide debuff for both forces or some effective third unusual indiscriminate special rule that does some crazy thing. (laughs) So... Some of the examples I've got here. Um, as an example of a debuff for everyone, there is unstable reality. Reality contorts before the eyes of your forces, moving them to question their strength of mind and will. Subtract one from the leadership characteristic of all models, and subtract one from combat attrition tests. So suddenly, when you, your extra guys are running away on ones and twos, or threes if they're under 50% strength, um, and more likely to be taking those tests because of the reduced leadership. That can affect both players in a, a noticeable way. Yeah, yeah, the board's going to get very light very quick if the uh, the heat stays on. But then, on the flip side of that, another twist example of this is hatred. Seething enmity drives your forces to rid the galaxy of a hated foe. When making an attack against the closest enemy unit, re-roll a wound roll of one. Which, that's a subtle but very influencing change, I think, because if suddenly both players, every time they make any form of attack, ranged or melee, they're incentivized to try and target the closest enemy unit, suddenly there's going to be a lot of like cat and mouse being played out with um, yeah. across both sides. Yeah, and it's going to force you to, to shift your army about thinking... So if there's numerous objectives on the board, you, you've got to try and think, so this middle one here has got two units on it, that one's got one unit on it, I'm going to put all my firepower into that one, get those re-rolls and try and get those numbers down ready to charge and then get those further re-rolls. So you can you can game some of these twists to, to really, really help you out, but at the same time, while you're able to do that to them, that does then mean that they're able to do that back to you. Mm. And this for me just conjures loads of ideas of like very classic matchups, things like, you know, Iron Warriors versus Imperial Fists, Ultramarines and Wordbearers, freaking Craftworld Eldar and Slash, like Slash Demons. These these ideas of these two forces that have some long-lasting enmity and they would just want to basically just kill whatever's closest. Yeah, just tear people asunder. It also means those exceptionally big, strong, powerful weapons are even more terrifying now because... Whereas before it's anything but a one, it's now anything but a one with a reroll. Mm-hmm. And then you get some very unusual special rules that add a 
a very unique twist to the gameplay, such as Blinding Sun. I thought this one was really interesting. In a cloudless sky, the sun's rays blind those who must face it. At the start of the first battle round, one player randomly selects one battlefield edge to determine the sun's battlefield edge. At the start of the third battle round, one player randomly selects one battlefield edge adjacent to the sun's battlefield edge. That battlefield edge is now the sun's battlefield edge. So the idea of the sun starts in one place and it's either setting or um, rising through the sky as the, the battle uh, goes on. Absolutely. And its effect is that you subtract one from hit rolls for ranged attacks that target units that are closer to the sun's battlefield edge than the firing model is. So basically, if you're shooting into the sun, it's harder to hit because you're staring at the sun. Yeah. And how clever is that? The fact that yeah, so... you're trying to manoeuvre your units to have the sun behind them so that they're more defensible. Because, I mean... Okay, it's 9th edition, so you're not going to be stacking more than that minus 1 at times, but if you've got the options now of either hiding in the tree line for the minus 1, or being exposed, but if you can have your back to a certain angle in the open, you're still going to get that minus 1, because the enemy's having to fire at you into the sunlight. Yeah, just this this great image of this horde of gene stealer silhouettes running across this horizon. Um, as you're desperately trying to get a unit of 20 gene stealers across the board, hoping that that minus one helps them out, and then next thing you know, the sun's on the other side of the table, illuminating them for the enemy to see. Yeah, there's going to be a physical shift in the gameplay halfway through the game when the sun is in a new position. Like units are going to be trying to sort of like swivel around the board to keep the sun at their backs. And there's you know, 18 of these twists, so there's a real ton of narrative opportunity there and just really interesting and unusual gameplay to bring in with those yeah um, they are really great and as we've said before about the cards you'll draw some where it will have no effect on your game whatsoever so if you draw rage uh, your warriors give in to the rage burning through them a fire only battle will extinguish add one to the attack characteristics of all models and you're playing astromilitarum versus tau <laughs> Probably not a lot of fist fights going on there. They're just shouting down the barrels of their last guns and their uh, pulse rifles. But if that's for uh, Tyranids and Wildeers, there's going to be loads of dice being lobbed for that game. It's going to be absolutely brutal. Can you imagine what like Blood Angels or Flesh Terrors would do with that? Yeah. Get some Death yeah, Company that have got even more attacks. Um, and yeah, so those three objectives, deployment, and twists form the basis of you know a core open war mission. Um, and then, depending if you're using ruse cards of your own choice or if you've got um, different sized forces, you can include those as well. And there are six different ruses. Um, a couple of them are really interesting, such as ambush. The enemy the enemy marches unsuspectingly into your carefully laid trap during deployment. Up to three units from your army, excluding aircraft or Titanic units, because I don't think they're going to be very good at ambushing people. Um, That's one very quiet game blade. So up to the three units that are illegible can be set up anywhere on the battlefield that is more than nine inches away from the enemy deployment zone and any enemy models. So basically you get to infiltrate free, any three things, more or less, that couldn't normally infiltrate. So, you know... Maybe not a bit blade, but you could do it with a unit of Lehman Russes. 
yeah, it that could turn the game around very, very quickly. And if the sun's on that side of the table as well from your uh, rising <laughs> sun. Yeah, and now obviously in this case, that Imperial Guard player is fighting someone that's got, you know, greater forces of numbers on their side. So getting those ambushes set up is going to be key to being able to achieve your objectives. Um, or you might have the priority target ruse. Uh, focusing on one key unit in the enemy army could cripple their battle plan entirely. At the start of the first battle round, select one unit from your opponent's army. You can re-roll wound rolls of a one for attacks that target that unit, or any other units with the same data sheet as that unit, which I think is a really interesting caveat. Yeah, that can help you with um. So if there's like three squads of cultists that you're really worried about in an objective game, that could then really help you get rid of as many of those as possible, and not just one unit. Yeah, I mean it's got a real um sort of like Death Watch vibe to it, with the way that the Death Watch can pick um like their tactics at any given time to try and. Uh, get benefits against like troops or elites or heavies. Well, if you pick intercessors as your unit of choice, then every single intercessor unit in your opponent's space marine army, you're now getting reroll once against. Yeah. Big orc boys, you know, you're going to get a, a lot of rerolls. Um, or you might get the tactical reserves ruse. One key unit joins the fray to tip the scales in your favor at the crucial moment. Once per battle, you can select one unit from your army that has been destroyed and return it to the battlefield. During the reinforcement steps of your movement phase, set that unit set that unit up wholly within six inches of a battlefield edge in your deployment zone, more than nine inches away from any enemy models. Although it doesn't say it here, I, I, I think the previous versions iterated that it couldn't be a unique unit, like a special character. Um, and I would probably yep. say, you know, do that. No bringing back Magnus just because he got killed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, you know, the idea that there actually will be reserve units. Oh, you're outnumbered, you've been overwhelmed. But if your, your unit of Bulgrins or your Blade Guard veterans or whatever, you know, they've been leading the charge, got killed, bring on another one from your deployment zone. They might, yeah. They're probably not going to win this outnumbered battle for you, but they might just tip it further just enough to achieve your objectives. Do they come back on from your board edge? Uh, your board edge in your deployment zone just basically right. have to be so nine that, um, inches away from the enemy. So if your objective drop on to, at the end of turn four suddenly flipping towards your side of the board edge and you've got ten neophyte hybrids just strolling onto the board about to win the game. Mm-hmm. And then finally, if you're really, really playing an uphill battle and you're playing against someone that's using twice the size of an army that you have, you could uh, you can pick one of these six sudden death cards or draw it rather providing you a couple of different ways of just winning the game on the spot such as kill, um, destroying the enemy warlord as a result of an attack made by your warlord or killing the uh, model in your opponent's army that has the highest wounds characteristic or simply having at least one model on the battlefield at the end of the battle so regardless of whatever the actual mission objective was, yeah, sure, they claimed the objective drop, but they were probably gonna because they had twice the army size to you. But if they didn't yep. table you, then you win. 
Yep, that lone guardsman's going to take that vital information back to command and it's going to help you win the war effort. Mm, the fact that he got to see whatever it was that um, came crashing down and they claimed, well, now at least he can go tell his superiors um, the vital bit of information that they need to know before they execute him for failing to get it. <laughs> exactly. And why are you doing back here? <laughs> oh, no. Um, and yeah, so that is... That is a little rundown of some of the different kinds of cards that are in here. Um, and we've sort of already spoken about how we think it really is um, a worthwhile format. Give it a try, give it a play, see what sort of you know unusual and interesting games these open war cards generate for you. And um, I believe, Chris, you've got a couple of sort of like pre-made examples of some games that you think would make really interesting sort of like narrative missions based off these cards. I do. I went through the deck and chose four missions. So each has a deployment, an objective, and a twist. And I'm not chosen ruses or sudden deaths, assuming that you've got a similar size force to your opponent. So what I aimed to do was go through all the cards and generate some missions that I thought were not only thematic, but would be really, really fun to play. Yep. So the first one I picked, a, I'm going to do my best to describe the deployments. So this deployment is short edges for the deploying, and they're both fully spear-tipped on to the point where they're both touching at the middle of the board. So very, very close. Ah, yes, yeah. Uh, and the objective is the prize. No matter how much blood is shed, how many lives lost or hardships endured, nothing else matters but the prize. Place an objective marker in the centre of the battlefield. An infantry model can pick up the prize by ending any kind of move on the objective marker. Remove that objective marker from the battlefield. The model is now carrying the prize. The model can drop the prize at any time and must drop it if destroyed. If it is dropped by a player's model, their opponent places an objective marker within an inch of the model that dropped it. The player whose model is carrying the prize at the end of the fifth battle round is the winner. Otherwise, the player controlling the objective marker at the end of the fifth battle round is the winner. Failing that, the battle is a draw. So a highly coveted prize that both armies want that can only be picked up by an infantry model. Yes, it's a, it's a form then, of the sort of like the relic style mission. Very, very similar, yeah. And then the twist is champion. Before the battle, each player selects one character model or one model with a wound characteristic of 9 or less from their army to be their army's champion. Increase that model's strength and toughness characteristic by 1, and its attacks and wounds characteristics by 2. So that then puts the kind of the ball in either player's court to say, I've got this really beefed up, tooled up, possessed by the warp, blessed by the gods champion. Do I want to use him as a beat stick against my opponent's army and their champion, or do I want to use them to secure the objective and try and keep it safe until the end of the game? Yeah, I see I see what you're going for here. That sounds like a really interesting idea where the two deployment zones are literally meeting at the tip in the centre, which is also where the relic is, and you've both got these significant like champion heroes to have stood on the relic, clashing for it at the beginning of the game. Exactly. So your your champion could one bomb your opponent's champion and be the biggest baddest boy on the board. But he if if a chaos cultist has run away with the prize, it doesn't matter. <laughs> True. Uh, second mission. 
So the deployment for this one is along the long edges of the table. It's mm-hmm. nine inches on at either short side and then nine inches away from the center. So not quite 12 inches on Dawn of War, but a little bit more spear-tipped ash. Uh, the objective, standoff. Two forces have faced off for long enough. The time is nigh to strike out, claim this territory, and seize the victory. Place one objective marker in the center of the battlefield. After determining deployment zones, starting with the defender, each player places one objective marker within their deployment zones more than six inches away from the edge of the battlefield. At the end of each battle round, each player scores one victory point if they control the objective marker within their own deployment zones, two victory points if they control the objective marker in the centre of the battlefield, and three points if they control the objective marker within their opponent's deployment zone. The player with the most victory points at the end of the battle is the winner. So, coveted prize in the middle of the board, but none more precious than the one in your opponent's deployment zone, so it's kind of that uh, break through the lines and get to the enemy's positions and secure the uh, secure the land. Yeah. And then the twist is indiscriminate projectiles. This is probably my favorite twist in the entire deck. Falling debris, burning meteors, and orbital barrages rain down indiscriminately across the battlefield. Each player rolls 3d6 at the start of each of their turns. For each roll of 6, they can select one enemy unit on the battlefield and inflict d3 mortal wounds upon it, or one mortal wound if that unit is a character with a wounds characteristic of less than 10. Each unit can be selected no more than once per turn. So there's this absolutely rip-roaring standoff between two forces, uh, enormous fleet battles going on in orbit, and debris falling down as ships, debris, missiles, comrades, dreadnoughts, tanks fall from the sky, and all you need to do is break through your enemy's lines uh, and drive them from wherever it is you're fighting. Yeah, that sounds like a really good sort of like high-end battle line conflict you know like two forces that have been dug in for months and this is the the major conflict that's going to break the war effort one way or the other exactly uh my third mission so the deployment is uh triangles in corners of the board so dawn of war shifted to the corner so there's a 24 inch no man's land in the middle the objective Hurtling down through is uh, objective drop, which we've covered. So the objective marker is moving across the land. You've got to try and capture it by the end of the game to get the most points. Yeah. Uh, and the twist I chose was unrelenting turmoil. Little respite yeah. of sanctuaries available across the galaxies of the forty-first millennium. Draw two or more. Draw two more twist cards and use both. <laughs> so it kind of is. It, it it's the very random twists with the very random objective. And it's just going to be a complete maelstrom of chaos. This this mission will be dubbed the banter mission because it will, like you say, just be models running around the board, twists going on for days. Hmm. Uh, the objective is flying about all over the place. This will hopefully be a mission that will have your ribs hurting by the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Now that, I think, will be really fun to see played between two horde armies like so yeah, and like Orcs versus Tyranids, just utter, utter madness. Yeah. Bro, and then my last generated mission, uh, deployment is an interesting one. So player A gets either short side of the board, uh, six inches on. Player B gets an 18-inch deployment zone directly across the middle of the board, so they're surrounded by the enemy. Yep. The objective is War of Attrition. Amidst the horror and carnage of battle, victory sometimes a question of simple butchery. 
Each player adds up the power ratings or points values of all enemy units that have been destroyed during the battle. If players are not using power ratings or points values, add up the number of all enemy models that have been destroyed during the battle. At the end of the fifth battle round, the players with the highest total is the winner, even if their own army is completely destroyed. Yeah, so it is like victory points slash kill points um, victory. Yep. And then, then the twist for this is rage. Your warriors are given to the battle rage, burning through them a fire and heat battle will extinguish. Add one to the attached characteristics of all models. So this is the last stand. There's an army in the middle of the board who's about to meet their demise. It's now down to smacking with rifle butts or punching with fists or stabbing with knives and axes. Uh, to try and break through, and if you don't, you die. Yeah. That's so those are the four generated missions. Uh, I generated them based on what story could they tell, uh, what armies could maybe fare better, what armies would have a more difficult time, so I made sure there was lots of variety. But most importantly, I thought each of these would make for a great crusade game at any point during a crusade, and you could tie it in with a narrative, you could... Uh, tell the story of your army as they're fighting their way through the thick of it, or if they've had a really difficult time, maybe they could use one of these missions to try and bring them back out of a slump. Uh, and just to show that missions don't have to be predetermined from a book, you can just draw some cards. Uh, or as we said earlier, have a selection of cards in front of you, pick the ones you like, and then there's your mission. Yeah, and I think I think it really does sort of bear iterating as a sort of last point on this, really is that just because there's this pre-written way of how to use these cards, it is by no means the only way to use them. You've just given us four excellent examples of very narrative-based missions that you've created by simply picking each of these categories of cards to create a scenario that you and your opponent would think would be fun to play. Precisely. And that's four scenarios out of the literal hundreds you could randomly draw or pick from these cards. And then on top of that, if you are an open war seasoned veteran and you've played with 8-fed versions, 9-fed versions, you've played tons and tons of combinations of games, it doesn't even have to end there. Because as we've uh, covered in the past... In the chapter-approved 2019 publication, there is, in fact, even some alternate like game modes that you can use the open war cards for. I know that one of my personal favourites in there is the format where you don't have an objective. Instead, both players have a pair of the sudden-death objectives to achieve, and you keep them hidden until you reveal them. And there's other versions in that publication as well. So there is even sort of like a next level to using the open world pack. And as far as I can tell off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure even though those, that was an 8th edition publication, the way it interacts with the deck of cards would still be valid to use the 9th edition deck. Yeah, I'd see no issue with that. Again, just make sure you and your opponent are clear with it. Uh, have a chat. Yeah, I really like the idea of the the sudden death one where you've each got one and you don't reveal it until you've done it. Yeah, uh, I think that'd be a really fun one to play. I think that's the, something. The poker faces on that would be absolutely brilliant. Um, so yeah, that is pretty much our overview of the open war mission pack, the pack, the open war cards, whatever you want to call them, for ninth edition. I wholeheartedly suggest to, to anyone giving them a try. 
Um, I think they are really good, and it's not really until you've tried them yourself that you get an appreciation for just such a good format for 40k that it is. Um, and there's plenty of depth to it. Agreed. There's nothing stopping you from grabbing these cards from your favourite retailer or from Games Workshop's website. Uh, I've, I've got a few friends who are playing Tabletop Simulator. You could draw these, take a picture, send it on a WhatsApp or a Discord, play that mission through just so then you at least get a feel for it. But this is a great resource just to have in your army bag so that if you do just want to have a, a faff about game, and not go through crusade missions or do match play games, or you just want to have a giggle, like, look at this deployment, this objective, this twist, like I did. That's going to be hilarious. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't overstate how excellent they are. And for the price, they, they are absolutely wicked. What I will say, um, for anyone who's listening, anybody in the community group, if you're not involved, get involved. Uh, I would love to see you guys come up with your own missions from the Open War Pack, or missions you've played with, uh, any any edition of the Open War Pack, pop a picture on the group and let's share our experiences with those and get those games played. Uh, and they, they might become staples of our games when we're allowed to play again. I would love to see those if you'd be so kind, guys. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Definitely do that. I look forward to seeing them. So yeah, they're not the ads. I definitely think anyone should try picking them up if they get a chance. They're really good. But... As an alternative, if you prefer your missions bespoke and with some very special and unique rules to playing out that very particular narrative, then stick around because I will now be jumping over to a another segment for the show, really, but this time with Mr. Dave Barker, where we're going to be discussing our latest mission focus, the Collapse of Argavon. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. Mission Focus And we're back guys. So we hope you enjoyed that look at the Open War Cards for 9th edition. Um, and hopefully they've inspired you to uh, go away and maybe pick them up and give them a try because uh, there's certainly something that I've enjoyed in previous editions of the game and I think the ninth edition ones are just as good, if not better. <laughs> but now to move on to something a little different, we're going to have one of our uh, mission focus segments. So we've looked already tonight at this sort of mission generator system that the Open War cards provide. So now we're going to have a look at one of these more focused narrative scenarios. Um, so I've, uh, Dave has joined me for this segment of the show, and we're going to be talking about the Collapse of Argavon um, mm. Crusade mission from White Dwarf 459. Excellent. Looking forward to looking at this one, Tony. Mm-hmm. 
So um, this this is in White Dwarf 459. It starts with a mission briefing, a little bit of flavor text. Shall I read that out? And then we'll look at the details of the, uh, the uh, mission. Yes, go ahead. All right, so... Uh, I'm not very good at voices, but uh, if everybody listening can imagine my best uh, Epic Armageddon computer game voice, uh, that's probably the kind of Mm -hmm. tone I always hear these things inside my head, at least. Uh, So the mission briefing. Uh, We have been holding the enemy forces at bay within this densely forested region. The enemy have deployed deforestation devices to clear the terrain, leaving us nowhere to strike from. We must destroy these devices before we are forced to abandon this position. Yes, so this is part of the sort of fall of Agavon narrative, um, and this is basically representing a stage of the war where Imperial forces were forced into engaging the Necrons in sort of like guerrilla warfare. So the Imperial forces have fallen back to these very heavily forested regions of the planet, um, and basically are just having to try and engage in hit and run tactics to sort of disrupt the uprising of the Necrons as much as possible. And as you can imagine, the Necrons are not very pleased with this, um, and they will not tolerate the presence of these lowly humans on their planet, as they consider it. Um, And they don't really care for forests. So their best solution here is they've decided to basically just burn down the forest in order to root out the humans. Who would have thought the Necrons don't like plant life any more than they like uh, animal life? Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's got quite a unique mechanic in here that basically represents that element of deforestation. Um, so we're going to go through some of the rules for this mission. Uh, well, we're going to go through all of them really, but to begin with, the sort of mission setup you want to be looking at is using a densely populated, um, board of wooded terrain, forest terrain, jungle terrain, whatever, basically anything. I mean, it, it says here, um, during the create the battlefield step when setting up terrain features at least 50 percent of terrain features should be woods if possible which should be uh, i have to say, sorry i have to say that one of the most appealing things about this mission for me is it's a, a real opportunity to use my uh, spiky cactus forest that i made during lockdown yeah it does a bit perfect for it um because you can just you can really densely populate your board space with this so i mean this yep. is um, listed as an incursion level game um but i mean you could probably play it maybe up or down the scale on that depending you know on how much forest terrain you've got um and i suppose it doesn't all have to be literally just area terrain pieces of wood but it could be like overgrown ruins or anything else you know um, yeah. spiky cactus plants on top of buildings i don't know <laughs> bursting out of buildings yeah and the way i read it was actually it can be any kind of terrain, so long as you assume that, that, that it's something that can be cleared. Um, actually, you're not restricted to just using forests or anything like that. You, you could uh, you could use any kind of terrain that can be cleared in patches, right? Yes, in theory. Um, I mean, you could do something on, say, like an Arctic um, world where perhaps they're literally melting the ice caps as they go or clearing the icebergs or whatever. Yep. Yeah, you're um, just trying to set Necrons up as hating, uh, hating the whole planet, right? Burning down the forest, melting the icebergs. Yeah, they just they just want to see um, all turn to dust. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, the sort of key thing here is that you want to be assigning the sort of like wooded trait to fifty percent of the board, basically in this area yeah. terrain, um, which basically means 
you want to be making use of the dense cover um, like terrain special rule um, so the whole minus one to hit if you're in it sort of thing yep. so that's going to be you know quite a prevalent part of this sort of gameplay and the reason why the board is intended to be so dense with terrain like probably more so than you would do normally for a standard game of 40k is because throughout the gameplay um the defender can use the activate devices action to basically implement this process of deforestation now it took me a, a, a read or two to sort of wrap my head around the fact that in this scenario, the defender is the army that's attempting to remove the forest. It's because they are the ones defending the deforestation devices, so these objective markers that represent the machines or the rituals or whatever it is that they're using, just crates full fire bombs, I don't know, you know, anything they're using to clear the the way. And the attacker is actually the um like the force hiding out in the forest attempting to destroy these devices before the you know the terrain is cleared and they're exposed. Yeah. So as part of the like mission setup, um, it's quite an interesting deployment map uh, because it's quite an aggressive one from terms of view of the attacker, certainly. So um, it's a mission that's played using the long table edges um, and you've got your relatively standard sort of Dawn of War deployments where um, the attackers and defenders deployment zones are along those long edges. However, there's only actually a 12-inch gap between the two armies. It's already quite a close encounter. And in the case of the Defender, they have three objective markers basically spaced evenly at the sort of like front center of their deployment zone. So they're um, set up 12 inches apart from each other in a line of three and only three inches back from their front line of their deployment zone. So like I say, pretty front and central and evenly distributed. So when you consider these devices are only going to be 15 inches away from the front line of the attacking deployment for uh, deploying forces, the attacker is going to be on top of you quite quickly, which is relevant because the only way that you engage with these deforestation devices is by being within three inches of them and not engaged with an enemy unit. Okay. And that, that's like true for both the attacker and defender. They do different things, but they, you have to physically be there and be on top of it. It's not like um, you can just be shooting them at a distance, attempting to destroy them. Yeah, so with the objective markers only being set three inches back from the edge of the attacker's deployment, uh, defender's deployment zone, and the attacker being 12 inches, uh, no man's ground between the attacker deployment zone and the defender deployment zone, it's only 15 inches to cover, or 12 inches to cover, and you're within three inches of an objective. So it feels like it's going to be a very close fought one immediately. Yes, there's probably going to be some turn one charges. <laughs> um, so the key thing then about using these deforestation devices. Um, so the devices are represented by three objective markers set up as shown on the map. Units from the defender's army can attempt the following action. Activate device. At the end of your movement phase, 
one or more units from your army that is within three inches of an objective marker can start to perform this action if no enemy units, excluding aircraft, are within three inches of that objective marker. Each unit that performs this action must be within three inches of a different marker. The action is completed at the end of your turn. If completed, roll a d6. On a 4+, plus, select one woods or wooded terrain feature on the battlefield that has not been cut down. Until the end of the battle, that terrain feature is said to have been cut down, and it loses the dense cover trait. So you don't necessarily remove the terrain feature itself? As written, no, but... I highly suggest that you do, because I think that would be taking this that just that one little extra step further to be really cool and narrative, and it also saves you having to make a note of or put markers next to terrain features in order to distinguish which ones have and haven't been yes. cut down. I just think if you're playing on a board where you're using area terrain, and you, you know you can pick that piece of area terrain up and off if it's been cut down or otherwise destroyed. I think it'd be really cool to physically remove it. And yeah, no, I think that would look much better too. Uh, I'm just trying to trying to get my head around what are the the difference between what the rules actually say and how I would play it. And I think I, I agree with you. I think I would take look to take the pieces off. But I think that's an important thing to establish with your opponent before you start. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. I think you'd want to clarify between yourselves that is what you're going to do. Um, I also think that will help just declutter the board as the game goes on. So yep. you're going to start with a lot of dense terrain. You're going to start with your full armies. And as the game goes on, not only are your force is going to reduce in size, the amount of terrain on the board is going to reduce as well. And it's going to yep. lead to more of this sort of fighting breaking out in these clearings. I mean, obviously, the advantage this has to the defender is that it allows them to remove the minus one to hit um, bonus for being in that cover. Um Additionally, if you're also playing where, you know, those terrain pieces are considered defensible or whatever else are obscuring, then you're also, you know, removing those elements. So it also gives a, a real boon to the defender to be able to actually remove these areas of forested terrain away from the attacker to be able to expose their units. Well, that, that was one of the reasons I asked the question, because actually if you've got uh, terrain that is obscuring, it does say, as as written, it, you, it only loses the tense terrain trait, uh, yes. which is I think is important to discuss with your opponent how you actually want this scenario to work out for your game. Yeah, like I say, if you want to run it as strictly as written, then you only lose the dense trait and all the other elements of the train remain. I just particularly thought this scenario sounded really fun if you actually removed the train as well. And I yeah, think that just adds that extra special um, i agree with it with a narrative war game of podcast rules as written is not really the sort of phrase we use very often mm. <laughs> or if we do it's usually in context of breaking said rules as written uh, indeed as uh, mm. i think we're both advocating here mm-hmm. i think that would be a really cool way to play this and it's the main thing that drew my eye about this scenario when i first read it um it, it put me in mind of things like the geothermal battle zone where i like to when the lava field gets past terrain remove the terrain if it feels like something that would suitably have been destroyed or subsumed by a, you know, a field of lava. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think what's interesting about this is that nothing about the victory condition for this scenario is actually tied to successfully destroying the terrain. It is just 
it's there to expose the enemy. Yes. So it really, I think fully removing the terrain piece also incentivizes trying to get this action to come off more. Right. I mean, depending on the armies you're using or the board you're playing on, there might be a consideration for, is that going to be too good? But the fact that it's only a four plus roll per device and it's not guaranteed, I think that's going to help prevent the defender from just strip mining the board and leaving it completely bare. Now, I know this is Necrons and, uh, and Imperial forces that this is written for, but uh, when you said considering the armies, I've now got in my head the fact that these deforestation devices might be Eldar um, psychic chainsaws going around cutting trees now. <laughs> <laughs> or just like um, in tuning with nature or whatever and convincing all the, um, like the fauna or flora or whatever to just depart or leave be. or yeah. you know, wilt or whatever. Or perhaps it's one of your wall bands with some weird bubble technology that uh, just pops out vegetation from existence. <laughs> just um, shock attack gun it into the warp. Yeah, absolutely. Or it could be um, grab field generators that just flatten the plants, like a bubble trucker yep. that just crushes it. So there's lots of options on how to visualize uh, how this could actually go down. Yeah, certainly. Like as with when we ever do these mission focuses, Whilst this is meant to be Necrons attacking, yeah, it's specifically meant to be Astrid Militarum, it's effectively jungle fighters um, in a forest. That does not mean that you can only play this scenario if you're playing Necrons versus Kachans in a forest. Like You can play it with any armies in any world so long as there's a sort of a reasoning for why what they're doing is happening. Um, so then the attacker is also able to perform an action on these objective markers. And this is the pretty straightforward destroy device action. So this is simply at the end of your movement phase, one or more units from your army that is within three inches of an objective marker can attempt, can start to perform this action if no enemy units, excluding aircraft, are within three inches of that objective marker. Each unit that performs this action must be within three inches of a different objective marker. The action is completed at the start of your next command phase. If completed, the deforestation device is said to have been destroyed and the objective marker is removed from the battlefield. So this one doesn't involve a dice roll. It's more automatic if you're able to do it without being contested, you will destroy the device. Yes. So it is it's not hard for the attacker really to destroy these. They just need to have a unit within three inches and not be engaged, then they can perform this action in order to destroy the the device. So I guess one of the things that's not explicit really in the scenario, but I think is, is a natural thing that occurs to me as I, I, I understand this. If you're playing the defender, you've only got a small deployment area, but this is going to incentivize you to have a lot of troops on the table and not, not to mess about too much with the reserves, etc. because you're going to want to be able to immediately counterattack and, and prevent um, the the, you know, the attacker from destroying these deforestation devices. Yeah, I think if, you're, if you know you're going to play this mission and whilst you're not quite tailoring for it as such, but if you're wanting to play yeah. with forces that are going to provide a good conflict and a good game for this mission. I think some, you know, infantry heavy forces that are going to be able to hold ground and, you know, they're going to be in a scrap straight away. 
is going to be a good game. You know, that's going to be the sort of thing you're going to want to have here. Yeah, I think a hyper elite force, as 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 the defender may struggle, simply because he may not be able to keep on top of uh, all three devices all at the same time and preventing preventing them being destroyed. Exactly, and it is worth noting that as a crusade mission, um, this does also come with a victory bonus for like you know for your crusade rules for your um, order of battle and in addition to the winner getting their requisition point as per any crusade mission in addition to that this mission also says that um, as the attacker if you destroy all three devices you gain an additional requisition point mm-hmm. and as the defender if sorry to just to clarify as the attacker if you won the mission and you destroyed all three devices you gained an additional requisition point and as the defender if you won the battle and you and no devices were destroyed, you gain a requisition point. So whilst keeping all of them active doesn't actually have to be an objective to win the game, if you do keep all of them alive or destroy all of them, there is a bonus incentive for your crusade. Yep. So speaking of actually winning the game, neither of these actions technically are how you win the game. Um, kind of like the attackers one more or less is so mission objectives victory points are awarded as follows protect the devices at the end of each of the defender's command phases the defender scores 5 victory points for each objective marker that is on the battlefield but this mission objective cannot be scored in the first battle round so progressively the more devices the defender has operational for longer they're scoring between you know five to 15 victory points a turn for that yep conversely there is the destroy the foe objective this way conversely there is the destroy the devices objective each time a deforestation device is destroyed and an objective marker is removed from the battlefield the attacker gains 15 victory points which is a big chunk in one go to say that, you know, destroying all three of them is worth 45, you know, victory points for the game. Yep. So you've, you've kind of got this collective um, five to 15 points for the defender for keeping them alive and 15 points per destroyed device for the attacker. And then as a shared objective for the mission, there is the destroy the four progressive objective. Score 10 victory points at the end of the battle round if more enemy units than friendly units were destroyed during this battle round. And that is active for both players. Yeah, so that's gonna <clears throat> that's an interesting tip in the balance. So that if you're being absolutely overwhelmed, uh, but you managed to just hang on the devices uh, as, the, as, the, uh, as the defender, you will be racking up those 50 points a turn, but then you may be losing 10 points a turn because you're just being wiped out. And before long... They'll grab uh, the the uh, the attacker will start uh, gaining those fifteen points for destroying the devices. Um, if you can't keep up, alternatively, if you're losing a couple of the devices, you might not get the requisition point. Uh, but if you're you're staying on top of, of, of uh, wiping out the enemy forces or swamping your mass, but you're, you're keeping your head up, then you you're going to be you're going to be racking the points up that way as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that you'll be achieving that is by removing their cover benefits by using the devices you that you've still got operational. Yeah. So even if even if you look at it as in terms of 
I can let the devices go as long as I destroy the enemy. Well, keeping the devices is going to make destroying the enemy easier. Yeah, and there's there's a there's a balance there as well between the tactical and the strategic because for a crusade game, of course, you you may have an eye to to trying to gain that requisition point, which may not actually necessarily be the tactically sound choice uh, in order to get that strategic uh, requisition point. So that that could potentially bring some tension in for either side, which is quite a nice balance. Yeah, and then obviously being a crusade mission, on top of that, you're also going to have your agendas in play for whatever the individual yes. players are trying to achieve as their second, you know, as their air quotes, secondary objectives. Um, and that's, that's that's kind of it, really, um, in terms of the actual rules for the mission. So it's not too overly complicated. Um, but I think... The combination of the destroying the terrain sort of effect, the fact that you're going to be only 12 inches apart on no man's land, and both forces are incentivized to be really getting boots on the ground on top of these objective markers, not just in a sense of like holding them across the board, but the actual sort of like front line of one player's deployment zone is where all three of these objective markers are is going to lead to a very tense and close-fought game, you know, with the attacker trying to dodge these gaps in their defences that the offender is creating by removing their their cover benefits. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel very much like a, a very ninth edition mission, uh, which plays better into the five-turn uh, five game, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's nothing in here specifically different about game length or first turn or anything like that, or even yep. sort of deployment. So it's your standard 9th edition Crusade rules for that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a few extra little sort of notes or suggestions I have for the scenario. I mean, first of all, the one thing that comes to mind, and I'm genuinely surprised there isn't like a designer's note suggestion in here, um, but I think this mission is a perfect natural fit for using the forest world theater of war from Saga of the Beast. Right. Which is the one that um, I played late last year with Dan, um, where obviously it's it's a battle zone for fighting on a forest world, and the key effects it has is... Um, so long as a unit doesn't... Um, fire ranged weapons um, or advance I think it is um, you can't be targetable by enemy shooting if you're over 12 inches away from the firing unit okay so that would allow the att- attacker to keep some units uh, sort of in reserve for a second wave uh, more easily uh, yes and I also like the fact that it sort of lends itself to this guerrilla warfare aspect of the narrative that, you know, the units are moving through the undergrowth, attempting to reach um, these objective, yeah, these machines before they get exposed. Um, yeah. But if they really need to clear defenders off these objectives, then they're going to have to open fire before they engage probably, which gives their position away to the defenders. Yeah. And the fact that it's a, a limiting... If I, I say 
say the distance is 12 inches, it might have been 18, I can't remember off the top of my head. But in either case, it's, you know, it's, it's a range restriction on um, fishing. Um, but the fact that you've only got a 12-inch no man's land and you're going to be on top of each other straight away, I think means that it won't be too impeding to the game. It's not like one player is just not going to be able to shoot the other at all. Yes. I mean, I played um, Dan's ad mech using my orcs, and I was worried the scenario would lean too much in favour of the orcs because the ad mech can't shoot me in theory. It really wasn't a problem. Yes, there were some times that I couldn't shoot him, he couldn't shoot me. But the majority of the conflict and you know units that wanted to be fighting or shooting up units could still do so. Um, I think there was only maybe two or three instances where something couldn't shoot something else, and it wasn't going to swing the game, but it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And then the other sort of two effects um, that Battlezone has is that one, um, there's a stratagem you can use um, to basically re deep strike a unit kind of thing i think it's like if they if they're not engaged with an enemy unit and it's an infantry or beasts unit i think um you can spend a cp or two um and you remove them from the board and in the end of the following movement phase you set them up again anywhere on the battlefield that's within 18 inches of their initial position where they left okay because they're basically they're disappearing into the undergrowth you know, they are they're really sort of leaning into the hiding their position and um, not engaging until they're in the, you know, the right place to strike. Which both the attacker and defender can use, you know, anyone playing on that theatre of war can use that. Yes. Um, and then the final aspect of the forest world is that if a unit is targeted by ranged attacks of strength, I want to say seven or higher, and the target of the like, the target unit, if they're in a terrain piece, which they're probably going to be on this board, um, then you have to roll a dice um, for every. I think it's just a, if if you shoot them with strong seven uh, weapons, you have to roll a dice, and on a one, um, the unit in the forest in that terrain piece takes like d3 mortal wounds because it represents felling trees it's like you know the heavy okay. ordnance weapons has caused part of the forest to fall over you know and collapse yes. which i think not only would you use that for when firing high strength weaponry i think it'd also be cool to make that roll whenever a unit that's in a terrain piece that gets removed is affected okay yeah, because yeah. obviously the trees around them are being felled or burned yep. or disintegrated or whatever, you know. Popped into war bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you could do something as simple as that, like, oh, units in this train piece now roll as if they've been hit by a high strength weapon in a forest world. And again, I think when I played Dan, he had Admech, he had, you know, a good number of high strength weapons. And I think there was only three or four mortal wounds dished out on both sides. Because every now and again, a falling tree would fall onto a vehicle or crush an unfortunate orc boy. Yeah, no, that sounds like an quite nice film. And uh, I get, I think that would work really well, and I, I think that would add a lot of lovely flavour to a game. But of course, not everybody's necessarily got Saga the Beast or those rules. And if you haven't, something else that occurs to me that would be quite nice and, and easy to use is the standard night fighting rules. You could uh, you could just use your normal night fighting rules in this scenario. Uh, you make it slightly more difficult to shoot and slightly more up in your face. Um, 
and um, you just get some of those similar effects without quite the complexity. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could, for example, use something like if you're in a terrain piece with dense cover, um, you can't be targeted unless you're in 12 or 18 inches or whatever of a firing yeah. unit. Because then that gives more incentivizing to destroy the terrain pieces and remove them. Because if you remove yeah. the cover, then visibility is any length across the board because you're yeah. not hidden in the forest. Yeah, yeah, that, it could do a nice combination that way as well. And um, yeah, I'd like the night fighting rules and I, um, I, I'd i like to advocate them a little bit more. I think there's something just ignored because people, it's just complication. I can't shoot as easily. But it, it, I mean, for, for a narrative game, especially crusade games, and when you've got a real mission to do like this, I mean, are the attackers really going to attack in the middle of the day? If they, especially if they're an assaulting force, uh, they're better in close combat. Surely, night fighting, you know, attack at dawn, all that kind of stuff uh, seems a little bit more sensible. Unless maybe it's world eaters, in which case they don't care what time of day is. Yeah, They'd that's true. Just be charging and I, regardless. And I just realised that I said that out loud that um, I've used the word sensible in the context of a 40k game, and maybe, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do that. Well, speaking of, you know, unsensible games and ideas, I did have a few more ideas of what I thought you could reskin this scenario as, or, you know, other ways you could use it for a narrative effect. Okay. Um, so we were talking earlier about it doesn't necessarily have to be forests and, you know, burning them down and stuff. I think this mission would be a really good one to play using, like, Cities of Death and using the, like, urban warfare sort of boards. Okay. Where you again, you can have dense, you know, fifty percent of your board covered in area terrain. But in these cases, they could be either ruins or even intact buildings. Yeah. Um, which, when they're deforested, it just represents whatever thing it is instead that's happening to that building where it becomes ruined or destroyed, and yeah. you could remove the ruins and replace them with craters because they've been hit by ordnance or artillery or undermining, you know, whatever that's caused them to collapse as part of the city block. It's with um, a, a modified hot spot gun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you could even do it like two stages where you could have an intact building that gets replaced with a ruin. And then if it gets deforested again, gets replaced with a crater. Yeah. Um, and any time any units are in these buildings when they get damaged or degraded or destroyed you know you take dangerous terrain tests for them you know roll a yeah. dice for each model in the unit and on the one that unit suffers a mortal wound yeah um i also had an idea where you could use um a battle as though it's taking place in like the top levels of a spire or a hive um where there's sort of like unseen levels below where the battle's taking place. Um, I know one of the missions in the Vigilus books is like um, Sky Strike or something where it's like a battle taking place on the the exposed um, outer uh, like tiers of a, a hive. Uh, yeah, I played that mission as well with, uh, with a friend from the club a um, long time before lockdown, of course, uh, with my Marines against... Um, uh, custodians. Um, only we didn't play it on the edge of a higher we spire. We used it as a mountain top. Uh, but that too. Um, 
And what I was thinking was that whatever these, you know, deforestation devices are, which in this case would probably be more like, you know, uh, say ordinance or um, orbital strikes or whatever, something that causes a portion of the board to basically be destroyed. Um, you could remove whatever industrial terrain or ruins or whatever is there. And rather than just removing it, you could also perhaps place down a um, like a footprint or a marker uh, that represents a newly impassable terrain piece yep. because it's meant to be a breach in the hive or in the surface of the spire and it's actually now a collapsed um, pitfall like into the hive or yep. you know into the mountainside or whatever um, and it becomes impassable to anything um, that doesn't have the fly rule because it's now this open chasm. So again, you could, I think for the ease of simplicity, make dangerous terrain rolls for units that were on or in that terrain, but then move them to the edges of the new pitfall. Mm -hmm. um, and you end up with not only dense terrain becoming sparser and, you know, a, a more open battlefield, but in actual fact, what's happening is that those areas of open ground are now pitfalls into the hive and they're not actually open ground at all so you're still being forced to maneuver between all the buildings and the ruins but without falling into these uh, pitfalls yeah that's a really good idea i do like that i think that could work really well in, in quite a number of different environments it, it need um you know if you imagine equally sort of like a, a dried up lava field uh, where the, the hot lava is no longer there anymore. But there's lots of subterranean channels and things like that with only thin thin coverings. Uh, it wouldn't take very much in terms of, of ordnance or whatever other uh, deforestation devices to start opening up sinkholes uh, all over the battlefield uh, in a very similar way. It doesn't necessarily need to be on a hive. Yeah, so that was that was sort of like the last idea I had. This idea of like a, a, a crack the earth scenario where ah, okay, I just had that idea without checking the uh, the notes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See that, that that's how like intuitive it is. Yeah. So it could be like I say, in like um, a desert dust bowl or on like a frozen tundra, and um, the ice underfoot could be destroyed or broken away by this um, barrage. That, that... Ice um, that immediately reminds me of uh, is it the second Cyphus Kane novel where he uh, floods underground underneath the orcs and the stomper collapses into a sinkhole? Yes, I think it is that one. Yeah, I think I've read that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So you could have this idea where, like, say, you're fighting on an Arctic plane or whatever, and when the pieces of terrain are removed and destroyed, um, you replace them with these pitfall markers. Um, you could just do something as simple as cutting out, you know, a piece of paper or like a black piece of paper or a piece of cardboard like you would do for the like the footprint of an area terrain piece and just have it as a, a black sort of void space. And any units that were on these terrain pieces when they were destroyed, rather than rolling, say, dangerous terrain checks for mortal wounds in that game, those units are physically removed from the game. They're gone. They've fallen through into the subterranean level. Right. And then you can basically use those units in a separate subterranean game. 
Now, we've talked on the podcast before about the idea of playing parallel games mm-hmm. where you could have a second board set up there, you know, in in the room at the, t- the same time and maybe you take different game turns out of sequence um, that affect the, the main game. Or you could use this as a follow-up in a connected series of games. So, you know, we've talked before about how you might play one game and then the next game you play is meant to be following on directly from the events of the first one. So units that escaped off the table in that previous game are now the ones that are in the game in the follow-up. Well, yes. in this case, you could do a follow-up game that now follows the units from both forces that have fallen into the subterranean level, and the next game is going to be... It might even just be a combat patrol game, because you yeah. might have played an onslaught to like 3,000 points. And throughout the game, about... 750 points per side end up falling through the earth into the you know levels below and the next yep. game you play is a um like a combat patrol game 750 points or whatever using the actual units and the survivors from the previous game to see who can um clear their way out of the tunnels and escape and there are even theaters of war and stuff for fighting battles in cave systems so there's okay. other stuff you could do there as well yeah, no, that sounds really good. And uh, I can see how that would be quite a fun game, especially if you've got a bit longer than just, just one game to play. You've got an afternoon uh, making a, a mini-series of link games like that would be awesome. I mean, I just think it'd be cool to see how, like, a hero or your warlord or something, you know, might escape from the the ice caves they've fallen into when they're trying to fight their way through the horde of hormigons or... You know, or boys or whatever that have also fallen down there. I mean, yeah, I think it would be one of these missions that would lend itself to um, end up being asymmetrical because there's no guarantee that both armies going to have the same points value of units fall into the subterranean next game. That's true, but you could equally at the same time also say that you know you can choose from up to seven hundred fifty points or power level or whatever you're using um, for your next game of those units that have fallen in. So you can keep it symmetric, but only those units are able to meet up. Or you could even play this mission as, you know, with your balanced um, army list, as it were, and then the units that have fallen off the game and into the next one, you could just play an open war game like we just discussed previously in the show, and you could play with the sudden death cards or the yeah. ruses or the other sort of balancing mechanics for playing an uneven game. And yeah. it it might even be the case that the army with the more overwhelming forces does end up, you know, crushing the um the smaller task force that's ended up stuck in the caves with them or whatever. But that in itself is almost sort of like a it's like a consolation prize because if they've had that many units fall through from the main game or the previous game, then chances are their forces probably struggled to win the previous mission because they've had too much of their assets end up being uh, removed from the battlefield. Yeah, no, no, that sounds like a really good uh, good way to play that out. Yeah, I mean, I just, when I read this mission, I was fascinated by this idea of a mechanic that allowed you to remove the terrain pieces mid-game more so than just like you know 
scoop up the objective markers and destroy yeah. them. You know, something that you would actually be changing the face of the board as you play. And yeah, and we've we've talked about missions where you change the face of the board as you play because of, of the rules like the creeping lava and things like that that you mentioned earlier. Um, or the but, um, the serpent's lure that uses the actual board tiles to sort of create. Yeah, we, we the still board can't say lure, can we? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this one is more even more under the the, the the player's control than serpent's lure, right? Well, at least one of the players. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I I just thought it was a, a good focus, or rather. I just thought it was a good subject for a mission focus. Um, yeah. I thought it was a, just a, a really cool and unusual mission that I wanted to talk about on the show. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, White Dwarf, as well as all of these other supplements we've talked about, are a great place to look for these kind of missions. And uh, when I'm able to play 40K, I, I love getting these on the tabletop and doing something just a little bit different than your standard uh, straight-up deployment. And, uh, you know, the... That you can add variety using using the 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 junker commander cards as we talked about elsewhere in this podcast, uh, but this this allows a little bit more uh, focus on the narrative for me. Uh, and there are lots of different ways to play, and uh, encourage people to find more different ways to play so that they can find a way that works for them. Yeah, I mean uh, that's kind of become the uh, the leading message now for narrative organ. I feel. I mean, I'm definitely. Like I'm completely on board with the tagline "Discover more ways to play," yeah. because I think you know, twenty three episodes in now to a forty k podcast, and we haven't ever touched on a grand tournament pack or nope. match play missions. Yep. Like we we haven't even looked at the standard ways to play the game, and. and- I swear, at some point, two, three years down the line, I will get around to talking about Planet Strike, Stronger Assault. <laughs> like, there are other game formats we've still yet to discuss. Yeah, yeah and all, all those, you know, let's call them vanilla ways to play, uh, you know, the match play and all that. If you enjoy playing that way, that way is cool as well. It's just that some of us like to bring narrative to the tabletop too, and that's okay. And some of us just like blowing up the board as we play. <laughs> well, you, you do seem to have a preponderance for the preference for those kind of things. I think it's the orc in you, Tony. It probably is. I just I really like anything that just messes with the standard template way to play. Something that's just out there and unusual. It just catches my eye, and I think, ooh, wouldn't that be cool to play? <laughs> Absolutely. And um, like. I'm glad to see that some of this stuff is starting to really creep into the Facebook group now. Like more and more, I'm seeing people you know posting pictures about the games they've played, using theaters of war or playing some of the missions that we've like highlighted on the show. I know um, just recently, um, I saw um, Douglas Mission playing the um, the new Warzone Charidon missions Mm -hmm. from the latest white dwarf stuff which we've yet to talk about that's another thing that we'll be covering in the near future but that was playing the mission that uses these like unexploded virus bombs um and these like death guard plague munitions that are scattered across the board that can have various you know horrific biological weapon effects on units that are trying to disarm them or even get to trigger on the opponents yes and the other thing that Douglas has been posting up that I really like is is building his own scenery as well. Um, and even if it's not, it's just 
not uh, not used any fan anything fancy. It's just uh, buildings or whatever, or like the, the the craters that you've painted in the past, um, and and the plenty of other scenery that we've seen folks post up. Uh, building and using your own scenery, making your own worlds, I think is is really one of the things that drives for me drives immersion and and this kind of uh, uh, build the ability to build a narrative. Driven by that immersion and thinking that you can you can feel what it's like to be there in the forty first millennium. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so that's more or less everything for the show tonight, guys. So um, we're just gonna um, be back in a minute with our community spotlights for this episode, and then yeah, that'll be sort of like just thank yous and goodbyes, really. So we'll be back in a second, guys. And for the last time tonight, guys, we're back. Um, so I hope you just enjoyed that segment there with myself and Dave discussing the collapse of Agavon. Um, I do think it's a really interesting scenario and uh, some really cool um, terrain-destroying mechanics, really, which is uh, why it stood out to me. Um, but just to take us out for tonight, I've got Mr. Chris Weldman back with me again just to do the last couple of our community spotlights. So Chris, tell us about um, any shout outs you'd like to make before we round out the show tonight. What up guys? Um, I'm gonna do a personal pandemic appreciation here and shout out to the Naladium Bar and Grill who are my great gaming group. Um, I adore them all. They are the finest group of guys I could game with ever. And I literally cannot wait to have us all stood around the table, rolling dice, calling each other horrible, horrible things. Uh, yeah, that's that's my big thing for the next few weeks, hopefully, guys. Nothing but love. Uh, big shout out to Boards and Swords Hobbies in Derby, which is my local gaming store. I help them out. They help me out. Um, they stock loads of great bits for all your games. They've got massive amount of tables. They're holding their heads above the water during this pandemic. So if you want to give them a shout, please do go and have a look at their website, boardsandswordshobbies.co.uk. Um, but I will employ you to go local, shop with your local independent retailers. So those are the ones who are going to have a really difficult time as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, yeah, try and keep people's families fed, stores open so that when we can go back to gaming, uh, we can go back with our stores and have a fantastic time. Well and, said. Uh, oh, I, I'm the Unrelenting Brush at Facebook, uh, closed for commissions currently, but still running tutorials, hobby blogs. So if you want to come down and have a look. Cheeky like and a follow, that would be great. Um, otherwise, shout at me on the Narrative Wargamer Facebook group. Yes, definitely. So check out the uh, the Facebook group. You can catch up with you know Chris, myself, or any of the other um, members of the, the podcast team, or in fact, any of the members of the community over there. Definitely uh, go check that out. Uh, and speaking of which, one of my um, spotlights for this episode was actually Mr. Jared Dayton from our Facebook community. Um, and this is because, uh, amongst various other things that he's done that are you know, very excellent, um, his recently finished uh, Quillen Custodes were actually featured on the Warhammer TV community roundup this week, um, which is funny because uh, th- now whenever 
the community team see something they'd like to feature, they do actually message the accounts of those um, people and ask them if they'd like the stuff featured. And funnily enough, um, I actually got a message from the community team myself over on Instagram because I'd reposted Jared's work as part of our um, narrative wargamer like community post where I showed a bunch of yep. things from our community and what people have been doing up to, uh, recently. Uh, so I pointed them very much in um, Jared's direction for his actual account over at Soul of Terror on Instagram. Um, and he was very excited to hear that they wanted to feature his um, custodes on the roundup. And uh, yeah, he was very pleased with what um, Mr. Wade Price and Chris Peach had to say about uh, his excellent work over there. So you should go um, either check out the community show itself or just go find uh, Soul of Terror on Instagram because he's got some very wonderful custodes over there. Um, and some very nice Iron Warriors and other stuff as well, so definitely an account work. Good work, Jared. Nicely done. Yes, well done, Jared. Keep up the good work. We'll see more of it in our Facebook group. And then finally, the other Instagram account I've discovered recently that I want to shout out was at the Orphan of Cadia, um, which is a very excellent account because it's one of these ones where the... Um, I don't actually know his name, but the fellow that's posting stuff on there, he's setting up these really cinematic shots of his models and his armies in a very similar way to one of my other favourite accounts, Garfigram, where it's done in that very Warhammer community-esque style, um, just high production quality shots of these scenic battles. And um, the actual the actual image that caught my attention when I first discovered his account was he's taken the Venom Crawler uh, from the Chaos range and he's got um, one of these very nicely staged photo uh, moments where the venom crawls crawling up the side of the imperial terrain, um, up the side of the uh, sector imperialis, whilst these space marine eradicators are trying to blast it away on top. It just nice. looks awesome. But we yeah, shall it's... have a look. There's a there's a Middle Earth player who does something very very similar, and you know, yeah, stuff like that. All the effort and the the eye it takes, absolutely yeah. wicked. Like um, uh, the orphan of Cadia, he's got some stuff where he's got like. Uh, Imperial Guard battle scenes where Valkyries are actually flying overhead with an on-flight stance. They're suspended in ways that make them look like they're flying, yeah, using things like you know smoke machines for atmosphere and all sorts. It's just a really sort of taking that modeling photography to that next level. And I always enjoy those kind of accounts, so definitely go uh, check his work out. And um, yeah, other than that, I think that's pretty much everything for tonight, Chris. So Thank you again for joining me and uh, thank you to Dave for joining me earlier in the week to record that Mission Focus. No problem. Thanks for having me, dude. It's a pleasure as per. I've made a point of talking slower because I listened to the last time I was on and I sounded like a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel uh, <laughs> after a big bottle of Coke. So I'm being aware of that. No, nah, pleasure try, as per. I could try to slow you down in the post-edit. <laughs> <laughs> unnerved no mate thank you very much it's a pleasure as per and i hope to join you again soon uh, i hope to have you back on again soon so yes um until next time guys this has been the narrative wargamer podcast helping you to discover more ways to play 40k